0: Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. I am your host Isabel Gutierrez and we're going to continue reading the Scarlet Letter, Chapter 7, The Governor's Hall. Now, without further ado, happy listening. Hester Prynne went one day to the mansion of Governor Bellingham, With a pair of gloves, which she had fingered and embroidered to his order, and which were to be worn on some great occasion of state. For, though the chances of a popular election had caused this former ruler to descend a step or two from the highest rank, he still held an honorable and influential place among the the colonial magistracy. Another and far more important reason than the delivery of the pair of embroidered gloves impelled Hester at this time to seek an interview with a personage of so much power and activity in the affairs of the settlement. It had reached her ears that there was a design on the part of some of the leading inhabitants cherishing the more rigid order of the principles in religion and government to deprive her of her child on the supposition that pearl as already hinted was a demon of demon origin these peop- these good people not unreasonably argued that a christian interest in the mother's soul required them to remove such a stumbling block from her path if her child, on the other hand, were really capable of moral and religious growth, and possessed the elements of ultimate salvation, then surely it would enjoy all the fairer prospect of these advantages by the beginning, by being transferred to wiser and better guardianship than Hester Prine's. Among those who promoted the design, Governor Bellingham was said to be the one of most busy. It may appear singular, and indeed not a little ludicrous, that an affair of this kind, which in later days would have been referred to no higher jurisdiction than that of the selectmen of the town, should then have been a a question publicly discussed, and on which statesmen of eminence took sides. At that epoch of pristine simplicity, however, matters of even slighter public interest and of far less eccentric weight than the welfare of Hester and her child were strangely mixed up with the deliberations of legis- legislators and acts of state. The period was hardly, if at all, earlier than that of our story, when a dispute concerning the right of property Property in a pig not only caused a fierce and bitter contest in the legislative body of the colony, but resulted in an important modification of the framework itself of legislature. Full concern, therefore, but not but so conscious of her own right that it seemed scarcely an unequal, a match between the public on the one side and a lonely woman, backed by the sympathies of nature on the other, Hester Pryne set forth from her solitary cottage. Little Pearl, of course, was her companion. She was now of an age to run lightly along by her mother's side and constantly in motion from morn till sunset could have accomplished a much longer journey than that before her. Often nevertheless, bef- more of caprice than necessity, she demanded to be taken up in arms, but it was soon as imperious to be set down again, and first onward before Hester on the grassy pathway, with many and harmless with with many a harmless trip and tremble. We have spoken of Pearl's rich and luxuriant beauty, a beauty that shone with deep and vivid tints, a bright complexion, eyes possessing intensity both of depth and glow, and hair already a deep glossy brown, and which in her, in her after years, would be nearly akin to black. There was f- a fire in her, and throughout her, she seemed the un premeditated offshoot of a passionate moment her mother in contriving the child's garb had allowed the gorgeous tendencies of her imagination their full play arraying her in a crimson crimson velvet tunic of a peculiar cut abundantly embroidered with fantasies and flourishes of gold thread So much strength of coloring, which must have given a wan and pallid aspect to cheeks of a fainter bloom, was admirably adapted to Pearl's beauty, and made her the very brightest little jet of flame that ever danced upon the earth. But it was a remarkable attribute of this garb, and indeed of the child's whole appearance, that it irresistibly and inevitably reminded the beholder of the token which Hester Prine was doomed to wear upon her bosom. It was a scarlet leather in another form, the scarlet leather endowed with life. The mother herself, as if the red ignominy were so deeply scorched into her brain that all her conceptions assumed its form, had carefully wrought out and st- similitude, lavishing many hours of morbid ingenuity to create an analogy between the object of her affection and the emblem of her guilt and torture. But, in truth, Pearl was the one as well as the other, and only in consequence of that identity that Hester contrived so perfectly to represent the scarlet leather in her appearance. As the two wafers came within the... Per- of the town the children of the puritans looked up from their play or what passed for play with those sombre little urchins and spake gravely to another behold verily there is a woman of the scarlet leather and of a truth moreover there is the likeliness of the scarlet leather running along by her side come therefore and let us fling mud at them but pearl who was a dauntless child after frowning, stamping her foot and shaking her little hand with a variety of threatening gestures, made a rush at the knot of her enemies and put them all into flight. She resembled, in her fierce pursuit of them, an infant pestilence, the scarlet fever, or some such half-fledged angel of judgment, whose mission was to punish the sins of the rising generation. She screamed and shouted, too, with a terrific volume of sound, which doubtless caused the hearts of the fugitives to quake within them. The victory accomplished, Pearl returned quietly to her mother and looked up, smiling into her face. Without further adventure, they reached the dwelling of Governor Bellingham. This was a large wooden house built in a fashion of which there were specimens still extant in the streets of our older towns, now moss-grown, crumbling to decay and melancholy at heart with the many sorrowful or joyful occurrences remembered or forgotten that have happened and passed away within their dusky chambers. Then, however, there was a freshness of the passing year on its exterior and the cheerfulness gleaming forth from the sunny windows of a human habitation into which death had never entered it had indeed a very cheery aspect the walls being overspread kind with a kind of stucco in which fragments of broken glass were plentifully intermixed so that when the sunshine fell assailant wise over the front of the edifice it glittered and sparkled as if diamonds had been flung against it by the dub- double handful the brilliancy might have benefited Aladdin's palace rather than the mansion of a grave old puritan ruler it was further decorated with strange and seemingly cabalistic figures and diagrams suitable to the quaint taste of the age which had been drawn in the stucco when newly laid on, and na- had now grown hard and durable, for the admiration of after times, Pearl, looking at this bright wonder of a house, began to caper and dance, and imperatively required that the whole breaths of sunshine should be stripped off its front and given her to play with. No, my little Pearl, said the mother, thou must gather thine own sunshine, I have not I have none to give thee. They approached the door, which was of arched form and flanked on each side by a narrow t- tower or projection of the edifice, in both of which were lattice windows, with wooden shutters to cover over them at need. Lifting the iron hammer that hung at the portal, Hester Pryne gave a sum. Gave a summons, which was answered by one of the governor's bond servants, a free born Englishman, but now a seven years slave. During that term he was to be property of his master, and as much a commodity of bargain and sale as an ox or joint tool. The serf wore a blue coat, which was the customary garb of serving men of that period, and long before in the old hereditary halls of england is it worshipful governor bellingham within inquired hester yeah forsooth replied the bond servant staring with wide open eyes at the scarlet leather which being a newcomer in the country he had had never before seen yeah his honorable worship is within but he hath a godly minister or two with him and likewise a leech yea ye may not see his worship now nevertheless i shall i will enter replied hester prine and the bond servant perhaps judging from the decision of her heir and glittering symbol on her bosom that she was a great lady in the hand offered no opposition so the mother and little pearl were admitted into the hall of entrance with many variations suggested by the na- nature of his building materials, diversity of climate, and a different mode of social life, Governor Bellingham had planned his new habitation after the residencies of gentlemen of fair State and his native land here then was a wide and reasonably lofty hall extending through the whole depth of the house and forming a medium of general communication more or less directly with all the other apartments at one extremity this spacious room was lighted by the windows of the two towers which formed a small recess on either side of the portal at the other end, though partly muffled by a curtain, it was more powerfully illuminated by one of those embowed hall windows, which we read of in old books and which were provided with a deep and cushioned seat. Here, on the cushion, lay a folio tomb tome. Probably of the Chronicles of England, or other such substantial literature, even as, in our own days, we scattered glided volumes on the centre table to be turned over by the casual guest. The furniture of the hall consisted of some ponderous chairs, the backs of which were elaborately carved with rests of oaken flowers, and likewise a table in the same taste the whole being of the Elizabethan age, or perhaps earlier, and heirlooms transferred hither from the governor's parental home. On the table, in token that the sentiment of old English hospitality had not been left behind, stood a large pewter, tankard, at the bottom of which had Hester or Pearl peeped into it. They might have seen the frothy remnant of a recent draught of ale. On the wall hung a row of portraits representing the forefathers of Bellingham lineage, some with armor on their breasts and others with stately ruffs and robes of peace. All were characterized by the sternness and severity which old portraits so invariably put on, as if they were ghosts rather than pictures of departed worthies and were gazing with harsh and intolerant criticism at the pursuits and enjoyments of living men at about the center of the oaken panels that that the that lined the hall was suspended a suit of mail not like the pictures an ancestral relic but of the most modern date, for it had been manufactured by a skillful skillful armorer in London the same year in which Governor Bellingham came over to New England. There was a steel headpiece, a curry grass, a gorget, and greaves, with a pair of gauntlets and sword hanging beneath, all and especially the helmet and breastplate, so highly burnished as to glow with white radiance and scatter an illumination everywhere about upon the floor. This bright panoply was not meant for mere idle show, but had been worn by the governor on many a solemn muster and trained field and had glittered moreover at the head of a regiment of the Pequot War. For, though Brad the lawyer and accustomed to speak of Bacon, Coke, Noye, and Finch, at his professional associates, the exigencies of this new contrary had transformed Governor Bellingham into a soldier as well as a statesman and ruler. Little Pearl, who was greatly pleased with the gleaming armor as she had been with the glittering front frontispiece of the house, spent some time looking into the polished mirror of the breastplate. Mother, cried she, I see you here. Look, look. Hester looked by way of humoring the child, and she saw that owing to the peculiar effect of this convex mirror, the scarlet leather was represented in exaggerated and gigantic proportions, so as to be greatly the most prominent feature of her appearance. In truth, she seemed absolutely hidden behind it. Pearl pointed upward. Also, at a similar picture in the head piece smiling at her mother with the selfish intelligence that was so familiar an expression on her small physiognomy. That look of naughty merriment was likewise reflected in that mirror with so much breaths breatheth and intensity of effect that it made Hester Pryne feel as if it could not be the image of her own child, but of an imp who was seeking to mold itself into Pearl's shape. Come along, Pearl, said she, drawing her away. Come and look into this fair garden. It may be we shall see flowers there, more beautiful ones than we find in the woods. Pearl, accordingly, ran to the bow window At the farther end of the hall and looked along the vista of a garden walk, carpeted with closely shaven grass and bordered with some rude and immature attempt of shrubbery, but the proprietor appeared already to have relinquished as hopeless and the effort to perpetuate on this side of the Atlantic, in a hard soil, and admit the close struggle of subsistence, the native English taste for ornamental gardening. Cabbages grew in plain sight, and a pumpkin vine, rooted at some distance, had run across the intervening space, and deposited one of its gigantic products directly beneath the hall window, as if to warn the governor that this great lump of vegetable gold was as rich an ornament as New England Earth would offer him. There were a few rose bushes, however, and a number of apple trees, probably the descendants of those planted by the Reverend Mr. Blackstone, the first settler of the peninsula. That half mythological personage who rides through our early annals seated on the back of a bull. Pearl, seeing those rose bushes, began to cry for a red rose and would not be pacified hush child hush said the mother earnestly do not cry dear little pearl i hear voices in the garden the governor is coming and gentlemen along with him in fact down the vista of the garden avenue a number of persons were seen approaching towards the house pearl in other scorn of her mother's attempt to quiet her gave an Eldritch screamed, and then became silent, not from any notion of obedience, but because the quick and mobile curiosity of her disposition was excited by the appearance of these new personages. And that was chapter seven. Now, it was a relatively uh, short chapter, which, I mean, it's pretty nice, right? And... Uh, It's all about the governor's house. Now, Hester and Pearl, they're going to visit the governor. One, because she needs to deliver these gloves, these luxurious gloves, because he's a luxurious man. And two, because uh, Hester, she's been hearing rumors that they want to take Pearl away from her because... Um, you know, since the last chapter was all about Pearl and how she is quite the, quote-unquote, unusual demon-like child. Um, the the Puritans or the townspeople, what they want to do is that they want to uh, take Pearl away from her. Because if Hester has any chance, any chance of achieving salvation... Uh, she can't do it with a demon child, essentially. So they want to, so they want to take, uh, they want to take Pearl away from her. Obviously, now, um, obviously, Hester being her mother, she does not like this because, as mentioned before, Pearl is Hester's world. It's her everything, even though she is a reminder of hester's quote-unquote sin she still loves pearl with all her heart and obviously it makes sense that she's going to want to talk to the governor because um uh, uh, according to the rule um the rumors the governor it takes part in this so obviously she's gonna want to talk with uh the governor now most of the chapter is just describing how beautiful this house is as i've mentioned before imagery is really big really big in this book and i love how it is wonderfully written you can actually imagine how beautiful the house is and i appreciate that especially the windows oh my god i don't know if you guys imagined it could visualize in your heads but i for sure did and um we also notice uh we also not notice but we also get imagery of pearl's attire and it's really interesting because pearl pearl as established in uh the last chapter she's going to be really important and in fact she is she is proving her importance and her symbolism right here in this chapter in this really short excerpt where they talk about her clothing how it's red and, and it's embroidered beautifully right but uh, it resembles or it reminds uh yeah, it reminds and resembles uh, the Scarlet Leather. And it talks about how the Scarlet Leather is, is becoming or has become everything Hester thinks about. Because, I mean, what the, what the book is essentially saying is that Pearl has become the embodiment of the Scarlet Leather. And that is very interesting because, I mean, I said last uh, chap, last commentary, yeah, last chapter, that I believe that Pearl was going to be the thing that will um, shine a light for Hester and show her that life can go on and not to focus so much on the scarlet leather and it's interesting to see that um pearl is seen or is referenced to as the embodiment of this scarlet leather so there's that but you know always keep in mind that pearl is going to be the embodiment the scarlet leather and she is going she is already important and she's only had like a chapter that de- dedicated to her so very important character i don't know what will happen throughout the rest of the book but we should just keep in mind that pearl really important and in fact i found uh the the passage where it says where um, it talks about pearl being compared or being the embodiment of the scarlet leather. It says in page 93, at least in my volume or in my copy of the book. But it was a remarkable attribute of this garb and indeed of the child's whole appearance that it irresistibly and inevitably reminded the beholder of the token which Hester Prynne was doomed to wear upon her bosom, the scarlet leather. It was the scarlet leather in another form the scarlet leather endowed with life so the embodiment of the scarlet leather the mother herself as if the red ignominy were so deeply scorched into her brain that all her conceptions assumed its form and carefully wrought out the similitude lavishing many hours of morbid ingenuity to create an analogy between the object of her affection and the emblem of her guilt and torture but in truth pearl was the one as well as the other and only in conscious of that identity had hester contrived so perfectly to represent the scarlet leather in her appearance now obviously i already explained it um, explained what this excerpt means earlier, but I'd also like to point out how, uh, towards the end, where it says, uh, Hester contrived so perfectly to represent the scarlet leather in her appearance, uh, y- it's, it's already, um, apparent that Hester's needlework is very prominent, in the story, and I might even go as far to say that Hester's needlework is how she expresses herself, or expresses—yeah, it's how she expresses herself because, um, I mean, she was, she is the creator of the scarlet leather, and. Even though she doesn't like that it's so eye-catching, she was the one who created it, which is kind of... It's kind of hypocritical if you think about it. But at the same time, she did feel guilty for it. And she does think that she deserves this punishment. But... That is what I have to say with um, Hester's needlework. I'm going to have to look in. We're gonna. Ha- we are going. We're a team. We're gonna have to look further into the book to see if there's any other situations where um, Hester's needlework uh, represents a feeling or embodiment of something. Because you know, right now the book. Just establish that everything that's on Hester's mind has to do with uh, the scarlet leather that torments her so much. Now, moving on to the governor's house. We learn a bit about Governor Bellingham, that he was an Englishman and that the Bellingham family is a very renowned family because they have a lot of portraits. They have a lot of ornate objects and decorations all over the mansion house they have a well they have an attempt of a beautifully uh beautifully cut and well-kept uh garden uh there's cabbages there's pumpkins and there's also armor which is which is which shows that he is a man of a very high position right and it's the chapter is just full of imagery as I said before and I hope you guys can appreciate that because the way it's written I'm all for it but it just set the scene of where most likely our next chapter will be taking place because next chapter will probably be very important because um remember how I compared the the conflicts or the issues of the book to a kind of essay where we already had uh the contextualization right from the introductory we had our thesis statements no we were we are in our thesis um in our thesis writing process where the first conflict was, is, who is, uh, the man who impregnated, um, Hester, who is the man who impregnated Hester, and, and, uh, now we have this new conflict, which is, uh, will they take Pearl away from Hester. So that it is argument number two. And the body paragraph will be developed throughout the book. But that is my prediction. That that will be another issue that will be running through the book. So we already have two issues. And it will be further developed in the next chapter. So I have not much to say. Because this chapter was just, you know, setting the scene. Blessing us with beautiful imagery and descriptions and visualize visual visual i can't speak visualization and a little bit on hester's uh mental state of you know incorporating the scarlet leather and everything she does even though she doesn't want to and that is it uh well that was it for today and uh thank you for listening